This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Peter Carey, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you very much. Now, I don't know if you remember this, but the last time you were here, you came to our office and we had... I remember. I remember very well, yes. (laughs) You do. Well, things are very different now. We haven't been in the office for some weeks. Um, Yeah. I'm I'm in my guest room, um, all set up and hooked up, and I guess you're in your um, place in New York. Yeah. Yeah. So let me just introduce you. Peter Carey, for those of you that don't know, is an Australian novelist. Carey won the Miles Franklin Award three times, uh, which is an Australian award of high acclaim, if you like, and is frequently named as Australia's next contender for the Nobel Prize for Literature. Carey is only one of five writers to have won the Booker Prize twice. I mean, that's just extraordinary. And I want to talk about, um, in our conversation today, I want to talk about Australians on a global level. Um, he won it in 1988 for Oscar and Lucinda and 2001 for History of the Kelly Gang. Uh, for some reason, um, Peter moved to New York. <laughs> we'll talk about that. He left his homeland um, and continues to write. So, as I said, welcome. This is a conversation really about where we're at and where we're going. One, as Australians, but two, um, as a global citizen, I think. And I want to talk about, too, um, the power of story and particularly the power of story during times like this and how you've managed that. And like for me, for example, in the first couple of weeks, I couldn't read anything. I was so, Mm -hmm. I was fretting and the only thing I could pick up were short stories. Yes, took to reading Raymond Carver for the hundredth time. But I did find some comfort in that. Tell me what you found comfort in. Food and drink, mostly. Uh, A lot of of difficulty in in reading, just like like you did, because I think we've all been very, very anxious and we've had short attention spans. I mean, I, I, I did think that I'd begin by reading The Decameron, which is all about, you know, the people leaving Rome because there's a plague and... They're going to drink and eat and tell each other stories, but it was not very. I didn't really enjoy that very much. And then, and then I went to Daniel Defoe, the the, the diary of the plague year. Didn't like that much, much either. I somehow believed that I, if I if I could just immerse myself in, in in all these these times like ours, that that I would get some comfort from it. But in fact, that didn't work out like that. And I'm trying to I'm trying to think. Ah, her name is. Her second name is Bill. Is it Lucia Berlin? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I started to read her stories, and I got, I got immense comfort from mm-hmm. there. They're they're rather patchy, I think. Some of them are a lot better than others, but where that would have worried me at another time, it didn't worry me at all. When I felt myself in a patchy one, I just flipped the page and found the next story. She writes very beautifully. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was great. 
So a lot of us have sought comfort in different ways. And as I said, mine has been short stories and, mm-hmm. and also nonfiction, I think. For some reason, fiction mm-hmm. was hard for me to get into. I think because I didn't want to let myself um, dip out of the coronavirus news, e- even though I wasn't getting much out of it, I was just constantly awake to that, if you like. Yeah, that's um, weird, isn't it? I mean, it you know, my wife would, t- I'd be there watching MSNBC, which mm. is vaguely left of centre television in in the United States, and I just couldn't stop watching it. And it Mm. wasn't making me very happy, and it still doesn't make me very happy, but Mm. I still can't stop watching it. Mm. The one thing thing we have in New York, and I I think I would guess you've probably seen it in Sydney, is Andrew Cuomo, the the governor of New York, who has a a talk to everybody every day about the middle of the day. And I never much liked him, really, before. I liked his father, uh, who everybody always wanted to be president, but he's really risen, as I'm sure you know, and so one gathers around that in the middle of the day to see what Andrew Cuomo has to say, even though it's not going to be anything new because it's going to be sensible and comforting because of that, because there's so much idiocy and and there's so much lying and braying uh, going on. I'm sure you know all about that too. Uh, I do. Um, I was going to leave that for a little bit later, but I do want to talk about that now. I want to talk about I was thinking the other day when I saw that media release of Donald Trump talking about, you know, ingesting light somehow. <laughs> See, I'm laughing. <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing. That's right. Yes. And, and, yes. and ingesting detergent or, you know, whatever yes. it is you need to do with it. Um, and I looked at him and I thought, seriously, I mean, that is a foolish man, right? Yes. But a sadness, because I don't know, I mean, and I'm sure we've spoken about this, I'm, I'm, I'm a lover of the US and I've, I've I, well, up to now, I used to visit maybe once or twice a year. I have really, mm. really good friends mm. in San Francisco and mm. I stay there for, you know, four weeks, six weeks. One time I stayed there for three months and I've always had a lot of love and affection for the country and it has influenced my life in so many ways through mm. literature and through American writers, but also, you know, friendships, the country, the diversity. Mm. And when I saw that media release, I mean, he's been, I feel, catastrophic from the beginning, but that in particular to me, I felt a deep, deep sadness for the country. It was funny, but it wasn't funny. It's more like fear, really, that one, this is the leader, you know, we know all this, this, this yeah. lunatic, this lunatic is, is the leader of the most powerful nation on earth. He's the yeah. one that can pre- press the button. I'm part of a support group for him now. Oh, uh, we're trying to figure out a way for him to ingest enough bleach to make yeah. him happy. Yes, yeah. <laughs> well, I think he should be a, uh, a couple of liters. A couple of liters of undulate would probably do it. I think. Yeah. Do you? Feel, how do you feel? Firstly, let's go back. Tell me how you got to America. Why is it that you don't live in Australia and you live in the United States? Oh, I, 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 I fell in love with someone and married someone who desperately wanted to live in New York. Mm-hmm. And it didn't seem like such a silly thing to do. It was an interesting place. I'd never, you know, if you ask me where I wanted to live, I, I spent a lot of time trying to live in Kuala Lumpur, for instance. But anyway, so I went rather casually. I'm a person who went, you know, if, you know, if I look at my life, you know, I grew up in Bacchus Marsh, you know, it's a predominantly, you'd say, predominantly working class, lower middle class town, and I'm sent to a fancy school at Geelong Grammar. And I go from there to Monash University and I fail at that and I go to advertising with no one from Monash University and I go to 
I'd just keep on seeing to sort of jump from one world into another world. And it wasn't a really a big deal for me to think, oh, well, I'm going to live in New York for a bit. I just didn't think I'd be here 30 years later or that I'd have, you know, that marriage ended in divorce. Um, I have two American sons who I love very much who live here and I'm married again and my wife's from London. And, and so, you know, one, I just, I guess one follows one's life in a way and trusts that it'll work out in some way. Mm. So you still write Australian books, don't you? Quintessentially Australian books. Yeah, well, I think that's, I couldn't, there was a, there was a moment, you know, I knew a lot of American writers uh, anyway. And when I came here, they'd say, well, you know, when are you going to write, you know, about us, you know? And I really, some, for a little moment, I thought I had to, for some reason, I don't know why. And it was actually in that period, trying to write an American book that I went to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and saw this show of, of Nolan's Kelly Gang. Yeah. And, uh, and I thought, oh, oh, I know what I should be doing. And, uh, and I think at that time I sort of understood that I was never going to write an American book, although at a time not so different to this one but not quite as terrifying uh, during the, the Bush presidency, the Bush-Cheney-Rumsfeld lot. Well. Uh, I, really, I really felt then we were on the edge of fascism, not really knowing that later we would really be there. And, I mean, honestly, uh, well, I thought we couldn't get any worse back then, but we did. Yeah, yeah we did. I thought so too. And uh, so I read a book called Parrot and uh, Olivia in America, which is sort of an inter- interrogation of a book Americans love very much called, you know, de Tocqueville's uh, Democracy in America, and which Americans always sort of think that the French aristocrat came here and, and, and thought um, American democracy was just fabulous. And I thought, this really can't be right. This is what they learned in high school. Mm. But, but if you go and read what de Tocqueville's saying, uh, he's very frightened of democracy in America and what he sort of fears and what he feels is sort of like where we had come to uh, at that time. Anyway, uh, so that was my American book, I guess, but it was written from the perspective of outsiders, mm. a French aristocrat and an and English mm. printer. So... You've been there for 30 years. Uh, I visit, as I said, I don't know, I think it's been for the last 15 years or more, twice a year, once or twice a year. And even though we're both English-speaking countries and we in Australia particularly watch a lot of American television, people often say to me, well, it's pretty much the same. It's, you know, (laughs) but I feel that deeply, we are deeply different people. Oh, we're wildly different. Aren't we? Talk to me about that. Well, you know, one of the things that I, uh, oh, how I, where, where does one begin? But I, I think I, I had that impression, uh, you know, like, for instance, if you're Australian and you grew up through the 60s, as I was born in 1943, uh, American music is very intimate, very familiar, and you love it and that you fall in love to it and you get <laughs> divorced yeah. to it and all of it. And so to you, it's part of your soul. But you don't realise how alien it is and how foreign it is and how it's got, you've remade it in your own mind and it remains important to you, but it's, they're, they're really different. And, and there's a sort of a, a, a cruelness uh, and a ruthlessness about America that we, for all the terrible things we've done as white settlers, uh, we really can't quite match that. 
And that one of the things I always think about is how Americans call somebody who's not doing very well in the world a loser, yeah. and we and we call them a battler. And we we or we used to, we might not in Sydney at this present time be using that language, but I grew up with the notion that so, you know, someone who's a battler is is poor perhaps, they're struggling, but there's something sort of admirable and about being a battler. It's certainly not something you despise. Hmm. You know but, what's happened to the battlers here in this country is all of a sudden they've started voting Liberal or Conservative, if you like. I, I don't know how that's happened. Do you know somebody said to me recently, and we'll keep going, this is a slight distraction here, um, but somebody said to me recently, Cheryl, you know, you're such a snob. That's why you vote Labor. And I thought, oh, <laughs> how did that happen? How did yeah. that turn around? That's turned around here. Well, it's a sort of a thing, you know. I mean, nothing, nothing is equivalent. But, uh, but the thing, the the the, tri- the great trick that Trump's pulled off is to persuade a whole lot of disadvantaged white people. That, that he will look after them, where in fact it's very clear he's not going to look after them and in fact he's probably going to kill them. So these these swings do happen. Yeah, they do happen. Okay, so do you, like, when when we think about ourselves and who we are, do you, or when you're introducing yourself, say, for instance, to other people, you know, when we once had dinner parties or once attended mm. <laughs> parties, do you introduce yourself as an Australian? Um, well, I would identify myself as an Australian. I, I think probably, probably my, in my, my situation in New York with people who don't know me is they, they, they think I just landed last week. Yeah, because your and, accent uh, hasn't changed. Well, I'm, I'm sure it's changed a little bit, but, but yeah. I, I, hope, I hope it hasn't. Well, li- living, in a, li- living well, have, having an English wife, you know, we have a sort of a curious sort of cultural ghetto that, that uh, we are defined in the household by being not American, I suppose. Although, of course, I opportunistically, I have dual citizenship. So, but yes, people would think of me as Australian and I would identify myself as Australian and uh, occasionally people who mistake my accent for English where I explain to them our history and why that's yeah. not a suitable thing to say. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I subscribe to the New York Times and... Uh, there's an Australian edition and there's a guy called, a journalist called Naomi, 
Damien Cave who writes. Yes, about. I, yeah, there is, yeah. Yes, okay. Um, and recently he was um, writing about the how Australia and New Zealand have successfully flattened the curve in terms of coronavirus. Yeah, I read and, that. Did you read that? <laughs> okay, so this, but this line, you might have seen it as well, and I've, I've taken it out just to talk to you about it. And it was at that moment I thought, you know what, I want to talk to Peter Carey and I'm going to try and track him down. But it was this line that I read. So sure. in that article, he said the history, uh, so he's talking about the two Pacific neighbours with their sparsely populated islands, history of pragmatism and underdogs craving for recognition. <laughs> well, let's, we're not going to argue about that, are we? Are we? No. I want you to explain that to me, though. <laughs> but it doesn't need to be explained to you because, that's a, you know. Do you think it's true? The, the underdog's craving for recognition. Yes. <coughs> oh, I think it, sorry for the cough. That's, I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> that's okay. We're the, miles away. I'm not worried. <laughs> I was expecting empathy. Anyway, never mind. Um, <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I think in, in, my, in my writing life and... You know, one of the uh, uh, when I began writing very early, it seemed to me like you know, and 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 we were like, uh, if you want to get a laugh on the London stage, as David Williamson once said, all you have to do is say Australia, and the whole audience roars with laughter. And it's true, <laughs> it would seem to Australia, everyone laughs. You know, it's, it's really fun. And so to, to and to be Australian and to be taken seriously in London in the sixties was a difficult thing to achieve. And and it was sort of like, you know, we were dogs standing on our hind legs and talking and how that was really interesting, but uh, maybe it wasn't art. And so, you know, I had a craving to be acknowledged. It meant a lot to me to be finally, after years and years, published in London, to have uh, a flattering profile in the London Times and on and on. So I'd say that... You know, this were, and I'm sure we don't do this anymore, but these were, these were the years when the, the visiting celebrity would arrive at, at Kingsford Smith Airport and the journalist would say, how do you like Australia? And we were always so anxious to be approved of, particularly by the Brits, yeah. who were equally anxious to patronise us. And so that was an important thing in my life and that's like science fiction in a way that I can, you know, Probably the place in the world where I'm best read and best known, it may well be the United Kingdom. Yeah. You know, and, and if you think about our, you know, our particular, the white history of Australia, and you think that uh, all the terror about the, the convict stain and the convict seed and how we would never be a decent nation because of the people we were descended from. So I think those, those things marked us a great deal. Mm. I do think we play on the international level where we feature probably a lot more than, say, our population represents, if you like. Like you look at the US and there's 300 million people. You look at the UK, I don't know, mm. 130 million or something, and Australia's 25 million. Mm, mm. And without a doubt, in just about so much that I read or watch or whatever, Australia will come up. Often I'm watching something, say, on Netflix, and it's a completely American series, and all of a sudden Australia comes into a conversation of one of the characters. Yeah. Do you, do you find that? Well, I think that's a, that, that's a, it's, there's been a huge change. When, when I was... I remember noticing when I was first living in New York and there were a lot of Australians publishing and publishing very well. And, you know, getting a front page in the New York Times book review was a big, big deal. And 
So I, I remember a period where, you know, one, one week I got a front page review, which of course I, <laughs> I noticed. Uh, and I think Bob Hughes had one and um, Andrew Ma. Yeah, wow. And it's like no one joined the dots in New York. No one thought here are all these Australians. Each one of us had arrived separately from Mars. And at that time, this is like the beginning of the 90s, I suppose, uh, the, sort of, the knowledge of Australia was not really, wasn't really there. Since then, a lot of Americans have travelled to Australia, but I don't think that started, say, when did that start? In like the end of the, uh, the 1990s, 2000, and they started things, change, maybe it was the Olympic Games. Yeah. And Americans started to have, if I find an American that actually recognised an Australian accent, mm. which was that didn't happen when I first got here. So I th- all I'm saying is that's changed. Americans are more f- have travelled more. They're more familiar with Australians. They've been seduced by a very particular, affable, superficial form of friendship to them. And um, <laughs> so uh, it's different mm. to how it was. It is different to how it was. I listened, uh, there was an ABC radio podcast uh, recently on Gough Whitlam and the sacking of Whitlam. Um, mm-hmm. And I listened to it as a six-part series. It was, you know, for a younger audience, but it was, it was good. Mm. And it made me think about what we could have been as a country because often I'm disappointed at the, at the path that we've taken, that we mm. have become more affluent and more... Um, there's been a level of hatred, you know, in this country because of politics, really, because, mm. you know, our leaders just have decided that the way to stay in government is to make everybody hate each other or hate people that yeah. are different to them. Yeah. And then I think about um, the sacking of Whitlam and I wonder what kind of country we would have become had that not happened. Do you think about that? Well, I wrote a book that was obsessed with it, which was Amnesia, which, by the way, to just veer up for a second to the American point of view, mm. uh, American readers and American reviewers tended to believe I'd made it all up because that happened and the United States was, uh, in my, in certainly my belief, very active in, in, in bringing down the Whitlam government, who they despised and they thought they were all Marxists and communists and traitors and whatever. But, you know, because the New York Times had never reported that, hmm. people, people's given the job of reviewing the book couldn't believe that it was possibly true that these things had happened. It was a very weird experience. I, I don't know. I mean, I think the, the wonderful thing about government is that they were not going to be cowed by the United States. And yet, you see, the United States doesn't take kindly to people who won't cow to it. And so they do things. Mm. And they have a long, long, long history, which I'm sure, you know, Mm. The listeners are all aware of her bringing down governments that didn't agree with them. And after that, I mean, the uh, Labor leaders after after Whitlam never made the mistake of uh, calling Americans murderers or they were nice. They played nice. So I don't know whether it, I wish it could have been like that forever, but I don't know whether it was possible. Mm. Yeah, it does. It makes me think about, like, you know, I often look at the Scandinavian countries, for instance, mm. and, you know, we're a small country. We're 25 million. We can be nimble. And we just, just didn't choose that path. And, no. and that saddens me. No, me mm. too. Mm. I saw, uh, I sh- sorry, yeah. I, 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 I was looking at, uh, we were thinking about blue poles, Jackson Pollock's blue oh, poles, lovely. talking yeah. to somebody. And, and so I, I went online and, and, and found some newsreel footage from the time and, mm. and there was Mollison and Bob Hughes and Goff and there's Goff talking and I said to him, 
Francis, my wife, there he is. That's him. <laughs> That's, mm. uh, with that feeling of, you know, sadness, pride. Uh, mm. Larger than life character, yeah, ahead of yeah. his time, a great thinker, you know, yeah, smart yeah. man. Yeah. Um, now tell me, in terms of stories, do you think that a pandemic like this changes storytelling? Are we going to see a shift in, in what we're reading in the next couple of years? Well, all life affects us. But, you know, I'm thinking, and who knows what will happen or who knows how we will change. But I do remember being here in 9-11 and everybody said, well, that's the end of humour, that's the end of irony, that's the end of this. It wasn't the end of anything. And I thought about that at the time, I thought that was silly. About this, I really don't know. The only, my, my personal response as a writer is that I spent a lot of my, well, my early work, my earliest pub- published work, uh, short stories, were often imagining sort of the collapse of how we live, the collapse of capitalism in Australia. And, and that was all, wasn't very realistic, but it was serious. And this is the sort of thing I might have imagined in my 20s or 30s. Um, and now, now it's happening. It's just so damn obvious that, you know, we've known that this was a, a risk and a likelihood, like a meteor striking the earth, that a pandemic was predicted. But who can know? Who can know how it will affect us in the end? I don't know. Mm. I've been, and you've probably been reading the same articles, in terms of what's the effect that it's had on, um, you know, climate change and the environment. And, you know, <laughs> we're seeing animals re- reclaiming their parkland and, and pollution, you know, subsiding and... I just always wondered if we could ever repair the damage that we've done. Yeah, me and, too. And it seems like you can, right? Yeah, well, that, but see, you're, you're, that's, that's beautifully optimistic and, and necessary. But I'm sitting here and I'm watching all the destruction. I mean, not physical destruction, but destruction of the social fabric of the city. And I'm thinking if we get a hurricane, um, Sandy hitting us on top of this, mm. God knows what that will mean. So, I mean, there's still a lot of climate change risk to human beings that exists right now. Uh, it is lovely. It's lovely to see the birds come back into the streets and mm. swooping down between the buildings and it's lovely for the air to be cleaner and people say in Venice you, you can actually see the sand at the bottom of the... You know, mm. Mm. But I'm, I'm actually not very optimistic what thinking that we'll just go back to our old ways? No, I, I, th- I think we, we uh, my, my fear is that we're just going to, this is a catastrophe. Mm-hmm. It isn't going to go away by June, July, August, September. It's going to, we're going to be with this, to, you know, for two years at least, and then mm-hmm. maybe a lot longer than that. And if in the middle of all of that, uh, with essential workers sick, oh, yeah, and, the, yeah. the, the, and then you get a hurricane in the city, uh, I think it would be truly catastrophic and I think the sort of amount of damage uh, would be unthinkable and we, and God knows where that would leave us. Mm, wow. So you wanted to get cheered up. There you go. I did. 
<laughs> didn't want to get cheered up. We're, fe- we're feeling a little cheery here because um, we've had some of the restrictions lifted. And for me, that's just been life-changing that they've allowed two adults to visit a household. Because I live by myself, I've, I've really struggled with the isolation. So Yeah, that must be very hard. Yeah, yeah, it was really hard. But to have two people visit, my oh my, I mean, that really gave me my mojo. <laughs> so I guess I'm, I'm sitting here at the moment and I know the numbers are quite low. I think we didn't record a case, even though we're testing quite widely. There's been no, yeah. um, no. Wouldn't so I, I guess I'm, I've, I've got another perspective from, from where I am here to yours, for instance. Oh, yeah. Just yeah. imagine, just imagine if what's happening in Australia and New Zealand actually sticks. Mm. And no one, no one knows whether it's going to stick no. or it's not going to stick. But let's just say it did. Mm. So what, what would that mean? It would mean a, a completely different country in many, many ways, wouldn't it? Because, mm. well, no one would be allowed to go there. No one would be allowed to leave. Mm. That's right, because the borders. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, so what would that do? I mean, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing at all. I think we all travel, you particularly, uh, mm. way too much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I'm in the unfortunate position where <laughs> my best friends live in San Francisco. <laughs> oh, I guess you're going to be sentenced to Zooming. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> I am. <clears throat> but it is. It's coming, it's coming from a different perspective. But we'll see. Yeah. It's a great unknown and every day is different. It certainly is. Peter Carey, I, I can't thank you enough for your time today. But also I do, I do want you to stay safe. I, w- I do want you to stay indoors. You too. And because um, I want to talk to you again next year. That's Cheryl. It was lovely talking to you. Hey, listen, have you got a book coming soon? I've got a, I'm working on it. You know, the definition of a novel is yeah. a long, long work with something wrong with it. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I'm, I'm grappling with one of those. All right. Well, we'll look forward to it. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Cheryl. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of ebooks and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Traffic jams tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. 
That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.